Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Kevin Brame was born on February 21, 1968, to parents Jerry and Rosemary Brame. After high school, Kevin served his country in the U.S. Air Force from 1987 to 1995 and was described as a protective, generous, and kind individual. Meanwhile, in 1993, he became a police officer for the city of Dayton, Ohio. He enjoyed being on bike control because it allowed him to be closer to the people of Dayton, plus he loved the exercise. In 1994, he married Carla and was the loving father of one son and a stepson, Dominique and Antonio. Kevin coached his son's soccer team and was also a softball coach. At some point, Kevin and Carla separated and became estranged. On the morning of November 1, 1999, after his night shift ended, he had to make a court appearance for work. Afterward, Carla called him and said the boys wanted to see him. Never missing an opportunity to spend time with them, he picked up five-year-old Dominique and eight-year-old Antonio, and the three of them went and picked out a new video game. Kevin's mother, Rosemary, asked them to come eat dinner at her place, but the boys wanted to go to Rooster's, their favorite restaurant. After dinner, the trio arrived at Kevin's mother's house and spent some time celebrating his father Jerry's birthday. They stayed until 8.30 p.m. before leaving to return to Carla's house, which was located at 624 Cherry Drive in Dayton. He went in, hooked up the new video game for the boys, and then left. As he was walking to his vehicle, a coward came out of the dark bushes and shot 31-year-old Kevin with a shotgun, killing him instantly. His parents were quickly notified and arrived within minutes to sadly see the yellow tape already up. No one saw a suspect, and while Carla looked very suspicious, Kevin never told her when he'd be dropping the kids back off. However, according to police in a 2017 news article, Carla had been uncooperative, cut ties with the Brame family and the police, and relocated to Texas three months after his death. As a result, some wonder if his estranged wife had him murdered, but others wonder if his job was somehow related. On November 15, 2005, Kevin was posthumously recognized with a Distinguished Alumnus Award from Colonel White High School. A $100,000 reward is offered for tips, leading to the arrest and conviction of the suspect. 
No apparent motives have been conclusively identified, and as of September 2022, this case remains unsolved. In 1966, 28-year-old chemical engineer Jerry Bricka had been married to 23-year-old Linda Bricka since 1961. The couple had a four-year-old daughter named Deborah Ann, who they called Debbie. In 1963, Jerry moved the family from Seattle to Cincinnati for his job with Monsanto, a popular biotechnology and chemical company. The family was living at 3381 Greenway Avenue in the Woodhaven subdivision in Bridgetown, Ohio. But Jerry was rarely home because he was described as a workaholic, usually working seven days a week. Jerry was last seen on September 25, 1966, at 9 p.m. on Sunday, moving the trash can to the curb for Monday morning pickup. The following day, on September 26, neighbors noticed the family's dogs were persistently barking. Also, Linda hadn't retrieved the trash can from the curb, which was very unusual. Their neighbor, Richard Meyer, called Jerry's office to see what was happening, but was told he never showed up for work. The following day, on September 27th, another neighbor, Richard Jansen, called the Bricka's house numerous times, but got no answer. Finally, both Richards were persuaded by their wives to go knock on the door, but no one answered. The door was unlocked, and when Richard opened the door, a smell that he was familiar with as a former World War II soldier hit him in the face. Knowing what was probably on the other side of that door, they turned around and called the police. Police found the horrific scene stranger than they had imagined. All three had died from numerous overkill deep stab wounds. Linda and her husband Jerry were dead in the main bedroom. Jerry had knife wounds to the back and neck, and Linda with knife wounds to the front. Her nightgown was torn at the breast, and she was meticulously placed on top of her husband. A sock was stuffed into Jerry's mouth, and they both had marks on their wrist that showed they both had been bound with rope at some point. The rope and the tape used to secure the sock in his mouth had been removed and taken. Four-year-old Debbie was also stabbed to death in her bedroom. The knife had been taken from the kitchen set and was never recovered. It was also determined that the killer was likely left-handed. Semen was found in Linda, but it couldn't be determined if it was from rape, consensual sex, or even to whom it belonged to. The two neighbors that contacted the police were tasked with viewing the gruesome scene and identifying the bodies for the police. They were both cleared of involvement, but a third neighbor raised serious red flags. Fred Leninger, a veterinarian and owner of Glenway Animal Hospital, was well known to Linda. They had worked together in the past and were rumored to have had an affair. However, out of the 400 people interviewed, he was the only one who refused to cooperate and hired a lawyer, refusing to answer even basic questions. Some reports state that the family dogs were sedated. If that's true, Leninger could have easily accomplished that, and he would have had access to the sedation drugs. However, it's unclear if he was left-handed. The Monday morning paper was missing, 
So detectives theorize the killer stayed in the home at least until dawn, possibly even wrapping the knife and evidence in the newspaper and throwing it all out in the garbage can. By mid-morning, it would be on its way to the municipal dump. The house was ransacked, yet nothing of value was taken other than Jerry's wallet. Based on their stomach contents and other factors, it was determined they were killed on Sunday night sometime after Jerry was seen taking out the trash. Investigators believed that the killer was emotionally involved with the family. Maybe they knew the murderer and allowed them into their home because there were no signs of forced entry. The torture suggested the killings were personal. The lead investigator thought it was strange that the dogs who had been locked downstairs didn't bark throughout the murders. As stated earlier, it's possible the dogs were sedated. Also, it was later reported that the tape found on Jerry's chin was medical tape. Even more suspicious is that little Debbie knew who Fred was and reportedly called him Uncle Freddy, which may explain why she was also killed. Either way, it appeared the killer was experienced. It was also speculated that since Jerry was the only one gagged, he may have been forced to watch his family be murdered and his wife possibly raped. Another theory was that when Linda had previously worked as a stewardess, she allegedly helped break up a drug ring. Their neighbor, Nettie Caudell, reported that for weeks leading up to the murders, Linda appeared to be a little more cautious about safety. She had stopped letting Debbie come and go to play with Nettie's daughter, Darlene, and began asking Nettie to call her when Debbie was ready to walk home so she could come out and get her. She recalled Linda mentioning the drug ring she helped disrupt as a stewardess in the past and that one of her friends from back home had recently been murdered. Lonnie Trumbull had been killed over two months earlier, and Lonnie's roommate Lisa Wick was also beaten. However, Lisa woke from a coma weeks later without any memories of the attack. It's speculated their attacker was likely Ted Bundy, as he was a 19-year-old college student working at a Safeway market not far from the girl's apartment. But there has been no evidence to prove this, and Bundy never admitted to it before his death. Richard Meyer recalled that Linda had mentioned Valerie Percy, the daughter of former Illinois Senator Charles Percy, being stabbed to death in Chicago a week earlier. Interestingly, Linda was a native of the same affluent area of Chicago as Valerie, whose murder also remains unsolved. Numerous strands of hair were found inside Linda's hand. Unfortunately, the hair, along with the semen, was not preserved, which was common in the 60s. Therefore, even today's technology likely wouldn't be able to determine who it belongs to. Many people have various theories on what they believed happened to the Bricka family, but none have led to any arrest, and as of September 2022, this case remains unsolved. At the age of 26, Van Thay Nguyen, who went by Stephanie, was married with two children, living in Delhi, Ohio, a suburb of Cincinnati. Her children were four-year-old Christina Day Wynn and three-year-old John Ty Wynn. 
On April 18, 2002, she left notes for her husband and parents saying that she was going to drive her SUV into the Ohio River near the Grand Victoria Casino with the children because her marriage had failed. She withdrew money from her bank account and left a large amount of jewelry with the note for her parents to find once they returned from an overseas trip. She instructed them to use the money and sell the jewelry to cover the expenses for their funeral. The Wynn couple was having marital problems, and she didn't want her husband to have custody of the children. The next day, an unknowing police officer pulled her over for failing to dim her lights near a boat ramp to the Ohio River. The officer noticed two children, presumably Christina and John, asleep in the back seat of the vehicle, a green 1997 Nissan Pathfinder. Unfortunately, this was the last time they were ever seen, and they were subsequently reported missing. Because of the note, authorities searched the water but never found any trace of Stephanie, Christina, or John. Then in 2021, 19 years later, the Delhi police took a fresh look at the case and searched again using advancements in sonar technology. The Hamilton County Police Association dive team and Indiana Department of Natural Resources assisted in the search. For six months, they scanned the very long river known for its debris, mud, and strong current, making diving efforts very difficult. Finally, on October 14, 2021, the vehicle was discovered submerged in the river in Aurora, Indiana, located about 24 miles west of Delhi. It was 300 feet from the bank and in 50 feet deep water and would have been impossible to find without the advanced sonar. But to everyone's shock, authorities only found one human fibula bone in the vehicle, later determined to belong to Stephanie. There was no trace of the two- and four-year-old in the vehicle. The windows were broken, and the roof was almost completely gone from erosion. Most likely, the children's remains floated down the river and will likely never be found, but without bodies, they remain listed as missing, and therefore, as of September 2022, this case remains unsolved. Alicia Monet Jackson was born in Pennsylvania on May 7, 1985, and grew up playing the piano and loved dancing. She graduated from Central Dolphin East High School in Harrisburg, where she started a step dance program and was voted Senior Homecoming Queen. She was described as intelligent, funny, and kind, and also a godly woman who was very forgiving and never held grudges. At the age of 25, she lived in Columbus, Ohio with her two-year-old son, Jeremiah, who she called Juju, and her fiancé, Eugene Wilson. She was employed as a city planner and research associate for Community Research Partners, a nonprofit organization in Ohio. Alicia's family said she was proud to be a mom and loved showing her son off at church on Sundays. She often dressed him in his Sunday best, the scarlet and gray colors of her alma mater, Ohio State University, where she had earned her undergraduate and graduate degrees. On December 2, 2010, Alicia left work early and drove to her babysitter's house to pick up Jeremiah. On her way home, she stopped at a local store and then arrived home around 5.30 p.m., 
Once home, she put Jeremiah in his high chair, turned on cartoons, and started preparing meatloaf for dinner. Her fiancé, Eugene, was taking classes at the Ohio State University to earn his master's degree, and they had plans to move to Dallas, Texas for Eugene's new job once he graduated. Eugene arrived home that evening to find a horrific scene. Alicia was deceased on the couch and had died from multiple stab wounds. Thankfully, the killer didn't harm Jeremiah. He was still in his high chair and had likely witnessed his mother's brutal murder. He was probably not killed because he was not talking yet. According to law enforcement, the senseless brutality could mean that Alicia knew her killer. When the police began investigating Alicia's murder, they couldn't figure out why anyone would kill her so savagely. She had lived a pretty good life so far and didn't have a troublesome past. According to texts between Alicia and her mother, authorities believe the homicide must have happened between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. when Eugene arrived home. From the beginning, the police knew this homicide would be challenging to solve because there were no witnesses, security cameras, or murder weapons. Authorities also searched the area and local dumpsters for discarded evidence, but nothing was found. Robbery could have been a motive since the killer stole two laptops and Alicia's phone, but they left Alicia's purse behind. It's possible the electronics were taken to either make the killing look like a robbery gone wrong or to attempt to hide messages between Alicia and the killer. Many speculate that the killer was a female, possibly a former lover of Eugene's. Strangely, there were no signs that Alicia had tried to fight off her attacker. There also wasn't any damage inside the home that indicated a life-or-death struggle had ensued. Her brother, Trevin, said that his sister was cautious and would not have let someone in her home that she didn't know. It is speculated that she was likely attacked from behind after allowing the person inside. Once authorities arrived, they found water boiling on the stove and the meatloaf still in the oven. Eugene was eliminated as a suspect and had a solid alibi. It's unclear if Jeremiah has any memories of his mother's attack, but he has suffered without her, as have all of her loved ones. As of September 2022, no arrests have been made, and this case remains unsolved. Amy Nicole Hambrick was born on December 24, 1987, and was described as funny and outgoing with a contagious laugh. At the age of 29, she was living in Youngstown, Ohio, and was studying to become an esthetician, which is a trained technician that specializes in skin beautification. She also adored her nieces, nephews, and daughter, who was 10 years old and living with her paternal grandparents. Her family says she was a good person, but was addicted to heroin, and her addiction had worsened. The family was planning an intervention, but it would never take place because on November 11, 2017, Amy would mysteriously go missing. She was supposedly on her way to visit friends in the North Jackson, Ohio area, but they said she never arrived. The police conducted numerous interviews during their investigation and performed searches with cadaver dogs. In addition, several warrants were issued for electronic devices searching for any information that might lead them to Amy, but once again, nothing was found. 
Then in 2022, nearly five years later, a woman searching for her lost dog in a wooded area off of Thornhill Road in Youngstown stumbled upon something that caught her attention. It appeared to be bones wrapped inside some type of cloth. She notified authorities and the bones were sent to be tested to determine if they were human or animal bones. A team of anthropologists at Youngstown State University assembled the skeleton and determined it was that of an adult female. Further testing and dental records confirmed that the bones belonged to Amy, but a cause of death could not be determined due to the condition of the remains. Unfortunately, there is very little information past this point, and we are left with a lot of questions that hopefully will one day get answered. Her mother, Debbie Dolan, says that someone likely knows what happened to her daughter and who dumped her body, but as of September 2022, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.